the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It is the 15th of August. We call this the Ides of August? No, probably not. Just save that for March, don't we? <laughs> At any rate, it is uh, a basic Wednesday for you here, midweek, and trust you're having a great one so far, and appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you on your ride home or wherever you might be headed. Now, Jarrell, don't go start yawning already. I mean, I barely said hello, and already he's bored out of his mind. Yeah, thank, thank you, Chewbacca. We <laughs> we usually at least let the listeners get, you know, five or ten minutes into the show before the drug-like effect of my voice begins to take over. <laughs> Suddenly, you're just fast asleep. It's, um, it's a healthy way and a cheaper way than using Ambien, many listeners find. <laughs> any event. All right. Let's not get too far afield off that, shall we? we got a great show for you. Coming up a little bit later on, uh, best-selling author Robert Spencer is going to join us. We're going to talk about this world religion that we were so frequently after 9-11 told was a peaceful religion that would simply been hijacked by a handful of crazies. Is that necessarily true? Does history bear that notion out? We'll talk about just that topic as Robert Spencer is engaged in some very deep and exhaustive research. He's considered one of the leading authorities on Islam. And his new book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, is an eye-opener. And we'll get to that conversation later on in tonight's show. Who's doing traffic? Michael Bennett back? Michael Bennett's back from that vacation. You've gone on vacation. Michael Bennett's gone on vacation. And... I'm here holding down the fort. Not jealous at all, just saying. All right, let's talk a bit about uh, vacations being over with. And, of course, uh, Congress getting back to work. And as they do so, part of the agenda certainly should be addressing the matter of Supreme Court nominations. Now, you'll recall last time out, when last we discussed this in depth concerning then Neil Gorsuch, that um, prior to him, there had been a desire by the Republican Party to uh, hold off granting the opportunity for the then-President Barack Obama to make a Supreme Court appointment to go through the hearing process. So all that sat kind of in a stalemate. Some are wondering whether or not Democrats are going to attempt to return the favor prior to the midterm elections. Well, in an effort to try and, and sort of fend a lot of that off, Um, There have been efforts both in the nation's capital and in key states uh, to help rally support, in this case specifically for uh, the current nominee to replace uh, retired Justice Kennedy uh, with um, Judge Brent Kavanaugh, and to get a look at efforts to educate the Senate and to lobby on behalf of fair treatment of Judge Kavanaugh. We're joined now by Annabelle Rutledge, communications 
communicator, coordinator rather, with Concerned Women for America. And Annabelle, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. I understand that uh, you and Penny Nance have been busy. Tell us what's been going on. Hi, Craig. Thanks so much for having me, first of all. Uh, as a Northern California native myself, I was born and raised in the Sacramento Valley, so it's an honor for me to be on your show and be able to talk to Northern Californians about what is going on with the Supreme Court nominee. Well, great. Well, great uh, to have so, your voice reaching all the way up into Sacramento and, uh, in fact, beyond. So tell us a bit. Give us an update here of the efforts going on to help uh, essentially provide some support for the confirmation hearings that haven't yet take place, that we hope will take place, certainly before the midterm elections on behalf of Judge Kavanaugh. Yeah. So like you said, I am out on the road right now with Concerned Women for America. Concerned Women for America's CEO and President Penny Nance, as well as our National Field Director, Janae Shockey, and our Executive Director. And we have a big red bus with Judge Kavanaugh's face on it. And what we're doing is going to key states. And these key states are determined. What we did is you're looking at states where Trump carried the election in 2016 by double digits. And in these states, the people are wanting Judge Brett Kavanaugh confirmed. But their senators are either on the fence or saying that they aren't going to confirm him. So we started up in Iowa, actually, where there's no debate, but we are uh, good friends and supporters of chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley. And so we went up to Iowa to kick off our tour there in the Iowa State Fair Parade and just show a lot of support to Senator Ernst and especially Senator Grassley for the work that they're doing to confirm Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. From there, we headed to Indianapolis to put a little bit of pressure on Senator Donnelly. And then then we went to West Virginia to put some pressure on Senator Joe Manchin. We made a quick little stop in Kentucky. And then we are currently in Missouri, and we've been in Missouri for three days. So in Indiana and West Virginia, here in Missouri and North Dakota, where we're going next, all of these senators are up for re-election. And so that's why we're focusing on these states. It's the states, again, where Trump carried, where the people want Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court, and where their senators really should be listening to their constituents. It's a crucial time for them not to ignore what their constituents are saying. So this is really a grassroots effort in the sense that where traditionally a lobbying on behalf of a Supreme Court nominee takes place at the Capitol, in the senator's office. But because, as you've identified, these six key states where there's currently some senatorial resistance, you're essentially taking the message to the people. So it's not only communicating to the senator, but also getting their constituents, their voting bloc, to let them know what they feel about any attempt to try and delay this vote. Yeah, absolutely. Concerned Women for America, we are a grassroots organization. And in fact, our grassroots here out in the fields, they fuel what we do in our nation's capital. They are working on the local and state level for these issues. And you're right, this is, you know, the Senate, the Senate, our senators are who vote the Supreme Court nominee through the confirmation process. But the reality is that those senators don't vote for themselves. They vote for their constituents. And so even though we don't have, we don't get to put this down on a ballot necessarily, the people of here in Missouri, the people in Missouri, the people in Indiana, they have a voice. We all have a voice in this, and it's supposed to be through our senators. And that's why this grassroots effort is so crucial. There's something different here in that I don't recall such grassroots campaigning taking place on behalf of Neil Gorsuch. Why was that? 
Well, actually, Conservatives for America did, um, we, you know, we didn't do a bus tour for Neil Gorsuch, but I wasn't working for Conservatives for America at that time, but I know they brought out uh, a couple buses of college students during the confirmation process, and we showed a lot of support for Neil Gorsuch, but we are definitely seeing that there is more grassroots efforts and more uh, hype, if you will, about Judge Brett Kavanaugh, and that's just because of the nature of the court. What's happening right now is that we're tipping the balance of the court. When it was Neil Gorsuch at that time, Judge Neil Gorsuch, you know, he was, we were replacing a constitutionalist for a constitutionalist. He was replacing Justice Scalia. But now we're looking at replacing Justice Kennedy. And while he did, you know, he, he was a swing vote when it came to the Supreme Court and his decisions. You never really knew which way he was going to go. At Conservative for America, when we're looking at Supreme Court cases, it was always, you know, what is Justice Kennedy? What's his decision going to be? Where is he going to fall on this issue? But when we're looking at Judge Brett Kavanaugh, he has 12 years as a judge in the D.C. Circuit Court, which is known as the second highest court in the land, and he has an impeccable record. He is abundantly qualified. Um, he has over 300 decisions, and he has been cited numerous times by the Supreme Court. And so that's kind of why this is different. And, and really, as you point out, Annabelle, the, the vote last time around, the replacement of um, Justice Scalia, who passed away in office with Neil Gorsuch, was essentially like for yeah. like. This is, yeah. a, this is a game changer. This is a scale tipper. This is very different. This is a vote that a lot of people probably would have bet on and said, oh, there's no way Kennedy, as the swing vote in so many cases, is going to step down this early. At the very least, he'll wait to see what happens in the midterms, if not wait until uh, the president is up for re-election um, two years hence before uh, deciding to step down. So this not only came as a surprise, but it came as a, a real significant potential game changer here. And I guess that's in large part the reason why you're finding more resistance and therefore need to be taking more of a grassroots approach to this to to deliver a strong message to these senators that if they don't at least come to the table and play ball by agreeing to a vote, it could mean their jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And it should. And that's part of the message that we are running into and also encouraging people in on our bus tour is they your senators should be listening to you. Make those calls. Call them. Let them know what you want and what you believe in. And if they don't listen, show up at the polls because these senators are supposed to be your voice. And in these states where the majority are wanting Judge Brett Kavanaugh confirmed, it's, it's important. The Supreme Court, I think a lot of times, can seem a bit esoteric and far away. But the reality is that it impacts each of our lives in in a huge way and this is not just a candidate that we're going to put up with for the next four years or even the next eight years but we're talking about 40 years we're talking about you know me growing up getting married having kids and it affecting them and potentially even their children my grandchildren so this isn't four years but it's 40 years it's generations to come lots of work to be done and we appreciate the effort and the focus that is an update from Annabelle Rutledge, Communications Coordinator with Concerned Women for America, uh, literally on the road there reporting from Missouri. You can get more information, by the way, online at womenforkavanaugh.com. That's women, F-O-R, womenforkavanaugh.com. We'll get another update as we uh, head into the uh, fall session here and see exactly where all this shapes up in relationship to confirmation hearings on behalf of Judge Kavanaugh. All right, we'll take a time out. We're at 517. That means time to get you updated on traffic. By gosh, by golly, he's back in his seat again. Some say the hot seat. 
And uh, we're appreciative of having Michael Bennett with us for the latest look at your ride home. Michael, what's going on? Hey there. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. 20 minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock. A couple of items in the news to call your attention to. First, a Jordanian immigrant headed to death row for two honor killings. This happened in Texas. Ali Muhammad Awad Isran received the sentence today in connection with two 2012 deaths in Houston. Isran murdered his son-in-law and a friend of his daughter because he thought they had helped convince the daughter to convert to Christianity. And more closer to home, federal agents are accusing a suspected ISIS member arrested today in Sacramento of killing a police officer in 2014. Agents charged al-Sattar Amin with the murder and have stated that extradition proceedings to send him to Iraq where the murder took place are now underway. Court documents say that Amin was one of four people who drove into the victim's home and opened fire, killing him. Then we have other incidences. World Trade Center in 1993, World Trade Center in 2001, and other various and sundry attacks throughout the United States and Europe, certainly too numerous to mention, that have all occurred post-2001. And while President Bush at the time was very eager in trying to convince us that the Western world may not be at war with Islam, be sure of this. Islam is at war against the West. And history points that out. In fact, the broader story by history is that Islam seems to be at war with everything that isn't Islam. Joining me now with some insights on the historical take on Islam and specifically jihad, is Robert Spencer. He is director of Jihad Watch, a program at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. Mr. Spencer is the author of more than 18 best-selling books. He's led seminars on Islam and jihad for the FBI, the United States Central Command, United States Army Command, and General Staff College, amongst others. He's also a consultant with the Center for Security Policy. His new book, the History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Mr. Spencer, great to have you on the program. Great to be here. Thank you very much. What about this core notion? And we've been told this over and over and over again. Well, this is kind of a new era. It's a new age. These events are isolated in the overall grand picture of the history of Islam dating back to the 600s. And that essentially this is just, whenever we bring up examples, when people like me bring up examples of of hijackings and killings and things of this sort, or the two stories I just read in my introductory remarks, that they're simply isolated examples of what is essentially a hijacking of a peaceful religion. But does that take, does that viewpoint, is it necessarily borne out by history? It's not at all borne out by history, as a matter of fact. And you really have to be someone who said that would have to really be ignorant of history, because this is actually one one of the main reasons why I wrote the book, to show that a lot of the things that people take for granted, a lot of the uh, assumptions that people have, like there was a period of tolerance and peace in Muslim Spain, and Jews and Christians and Muslims all lived together in peace and harmony, a lot of these things, they are politically motivated historical myths designed to get people to accept certain policies of the present day. And so in this book, I set the historical record straight and show that, uh, as you say, the the uh, jihad 
has always been set against the world, and there has never been a time of peaceful coexistence. If Islam is peaceful, then every uh, jihadi in the world in, since the 7th century has misunderstood it and has somehow gotten the idea that his religion mandates warfare against unbelievers. And in the book I show, this is not really a misunderstanding. It comes straight from the Quran and Muhammad, and it's been acted upon throughout history. Well, let's talk about this for a moment, because many would argue that, you know, yes, okay, we can, we can cite some examples and say, well, perhaps there is a misapplication, a misinterpretation of the Hadith or the Quran, or an imam gets up in mosque on Friday and says some crazy things and incites some people to do some violent things, and there have been examples of this certainly since the death of Muhammad in um, 632 A.D., but the reality is it's not just what's happened since Muhammad. It's not the potentiality of misinterpretation, as some would argue, of the teachings of Muhammad since his death that have been contributory to this. But in fact, very Islam itself, under the leadership of Muhammad, was born out of violence. Give us a little bit of history, if you would, Robert, in terms of just what transpired, for example, in the experiences that Muhammad had in sharing his vision, so to speak, in the cities of Medina and Mecca. Absolutely. Well, Muhammad, of course, started out in Mecca, and he was teaching peace and tolerance then. And this is because he had a very small band of followers, no political power, no military power. Later on, after the Hijra, the emigration from Mecca to Medina, then suddenly he became a military leader, a political leader. He was much more powerful than he had been, and he began to preach warfare against unbelievers. And this is a market change that you see in the Meccan passages as opposed to the Medinan passages of the Quran. Now, the thing about this is that the Medinan passages have always, in Islamic uh, scholarship, been considered to take precedence over the Meccan ones. And that means that the violent passages take precedence over the peaceful ones. This is entirely coherent and understandable when you look at Muhammad's life, as I do in the first chapter of this book, and you see that he led battles, he ordered his enemies to be assassinated, he rewarded his followers when they carried out assassinations of that kind, and he, uh, re- he taught, taught his followers that they needed to wage war against unbelievers in order to bring them under the hegemony of Islamic law. So when Islamic jihadis have behaved this way throughout history, they're just imitating the man who the Quran calls the perfect example of conduct, the excellent example. Help us understand this, the reason for the shift. And, 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 and maybe before you answer that, you can give us some insight from your perspective. When we've looked at the creation, the foundation of world religion, certainly post-Christianity, uh, we can point to many. I can look, for example, at L. Ron Hubbard, who started Scientology because he wanted money. David Koresh wanted respect. Jim Jones wanted power. What was Muhammad looking for when he created Islam? Well, certainly power was part of it, and uh, the Quran is rather extraordinary, uh, Islamic tradition even more so, in making Muhammad essentially the most important person in the world. And uh, as a matter of fact, in the Quran, when um, Allah changes the direction of prayer for the Muslims who originally prayed toward Jerusalem, and uh, the, the dialogue between Muhammad and Allah is... Uh, recorded in the Quran, as it was essentially a monologue from Allah, but Allah is telling Muhammad, I know you're going to be pleased by this new Qibla, the direction for prayer. 
and he's always telling him not to be downhearted if people don't believe him, and uh, he's very solicitous of his feelings, of his uh, of his uh, well-being, and so on. He's even granted permission to have more wives. The Muslims are granted permission to have four wives, but Muhammad can have an unlimited number. And there is a celebrated instance in which his daughter-in-law is divorced from his son and, son and married off to Muhammad because Muhammad was overcome by her beauty. And even in that, uh, it's not in the Quran, it's recorded in Islamic tradition. Aisha, his favorite and uh, his famous child bride, said to him, Allah always hastens to grant you your desires. Now, when you read all these things in the aggregate, it's hard to escape the impression that this is somebody who's discovered that if he tells people he's a prophet in a convincing manner, then he can get a very nice life where people are just anxious to give him everything he wants. If you're just joining our conversation, our visit today with best-selling author Robert Spencer. Robert has just penned a new book published by Bombardier and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. You can also get more information at jihadwatch.org. The book is called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. And certainly to understand what's at play today and what the West is up against, what the Western world is up against, you really need to put it in perspective of the historical roots of Islam. And we're doing that for you on the program today. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about this shift. So what exactly transpired between the presence of Muhammad in Mecca versus his arrival in Medina that moved to greater violence? And what was the motivation behind all of that? We'll get to that part of the equation. Our conversation continues with Islamic expert, best-selling author, Robert Spencer, The History of Jihad, as Lifeline continues. All right, now let's get the history of your brief ride home today. Hopefully it will remain brief. They won't be talking about this for years to come. Let's see what's going on traffic-wise. The latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gaining some very valuable historical perspective on the history of Islam and specifically jihad from the time of Muhammad to the present day. And with us today is best-selling author, considered by many to be the world's preeminent expert on this topic, Robert Spencer. Robert's new book is called The History of Jihad. Robert, give us a little bit of perspective here. Uh, it, it seems as if this shift from generally kind of uh, easygoing, we'll call it, for the sake of conversation, to the, the violent, almost uh, uh, promotion of Islam by the sword that takes place between his time in Mecca versus the time in Medina. What do we count for all of this? Was, was this a message that was not well received, and so he decided if people wouldn't, wouldn't uh, join him and sign on to Islam peacefully and willingly that he would force them into it? Well, uh, yeah, actually, that's a good capsule summary. He was always at odds with the Quraysh, the pagans of Mecca. He was a member of the Quraysh tribe, but they rejected his prophetic message. And then he was invited by the people of Yathrib, which was a neighboring city, to come and uh, be their ruler, and they would accept Islam. And the city was renamed Medina, or Medinat Navi, the city of the prophet. And then he began to order his followers to raid the Quraysh caravans, and then ultimately fought several battles with the Quraysh. And the Quran's teachings start to change, not uh, to command people to be forced to accept Islam, but they were to be presented with a triple choice. They could convert or 
uh, accept a subjugated second-class status uh, under the rule of Islamic law, which denies non-Muslims basic rights, or they could be killed or go to war. And that was it. And so uh, it was with that formula that the Islamic army swept out of Arabia and conquered an expanse stretching from Spain to India within 100 years of Muhammad's death. Yeah, I know this is going to sound terribly uh, distasteful or, or, or insulting, but, you know, <laughs> listening to that description, it almost sounds like mafia protection rackets, you know? You don't want anything to happen to the store, be sure to pay us. You know, right. if, if you want to live, if you want to enjoy your citizenship, make sure you join us. And if you don't, there will be consequences. Wow. You couldn't be more right. It's very important. Uh, I show in the book how Sicily was conquered and occupied by the Muslims for several hundred years. And I do believe that there is a direct influence on the mafia from the Muslim occupation because the, uh, you have the death penalty for those who leave and the protection money that is based essentially on a threat. And uh, I don't think these things arose out of a vacuum. I think that they came into Sicily during the Islamic occupation. Do we see much of this continuing to this day? I mean, certainly we understand, as it's been related to the West, that some of the attacks on the West have been uh, upset with either Western presence in the Middle East, Western policies, Western politics, Western lifestyles, for that matter. But I wonder how much of this, if at all, ties into also this notion, as you're suggesting, Robert, that, that Islam believes that there's no such thing as rejection without consequences. Is is that part of the dynamic we see here with some of the violence that's played out? Oh, there's no doubt about it, absolutely. There's never been a reformation, a rejection, a reconsideration of any of these doctrines of Islam that gave rise to the jihad violence in the first place. And so you have uh, the Islamic State, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, many other groups around the world, and they are essentially considering themselves to be the latest exponents of a 1,400-year-old war that they received from their father and grandfather, and they're going to pass on to their son and grandson. Wow. So when there's discussion of the push toward a present day or a, 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 a new caliphate, uh, th- this really finds its roots in the continuation of attitudes and a war, as you suggest, that began almost at the very beginning of Islam. Yeah, and we need to understand this. This is another one of the reasons why I wrote this book. You see, Craig, I remember a few years ago when General Petraeus was still active, and he was talking about Afghanistan, and he said, this war could take 10 years to wrap up. And I thought, are you kidding? You think there's going to be no more jihad in Afghanistan after 10 years? These people consider themselves to be the latest exponents of a 14th century long struggle. They're not going to give up in 10 years. They might bide their time until the situation is more opportune for them, but they're not going to give up. Is it a misconception to believe that there seems to have been a, a resurgence, or has there been degrees of, of warfare-like engagement and terrorism all along? And I ask that question because we can certainly look to a point um, beginning 1960s, certainly 1970, with uh, Islamic attitudes towards Israel, for example, and then we came with the Iranian hostage crisis in 1978, isolated terrorist attacks in various parts of the world against the West in the ensuing years. We saw the 93 bombing attempt 
on the World Trade Center, the more successful attack in 2001. There's sometimes, I think, perception that uh, the current spate of violence is more of a current or present day phenomenon. But it seems that you're suggesting that this has been a thread that's run through the history of Islam. Is it just that it's it's more visible today? There's better reporting today? Or has there, in fact, been a more recent times mean over the last uh, couple of generations, few decades or so, increase in violence against the West? Yeah, there's very much been a resurgence. It is a 1,400-year struggle, and it has been present in all these centuries since the 7th. But there are, it, it ebbs and flows like everything else. There are periods where it's very virulent and periods where it falls a little bit more into abeyance. And uh, the beginning of the 20th century was one of the low points in the history of the global jihad. But then the Saudis struck oil, and then the uh, modern means of communication began to be developed, and then the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran was able to dislodge the Shah. And all those three things gave a tremendous impetus for a resurgence of the jihad. The Saudis have spent billions to spread the Wahhabi ideology around the world. It's a very virulent and violent form of Islam. And the modern communications made it very easy to penetrate with this Wahhabi message into areas where a cultural form of Islam had taken root that was not nearly as interested in jihad as the book might want you to be. And so the uh, areas of West and East Africa, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, they were challenged. And uh, the Saudis went in and said, look, you're not living up to what the Quran says. You've forgotten your obligation to jihad and called them back to it. And then the uh, Iranian mullahs showed that Islamic jihadis could actually win a, a struggle to control a state and establish a government. And so these three things made for a tremendous resurgence of jihad in the last few decades. And we certainly can understand how modernization of communication and transportation has eased the methodology in spreading this message. But let's be fair about this. Uh, This is not, for example, Islam's first foray from the Middle East into the West. Uh, Look at what happened in Europe and the the concentration on uh, countries like Spain by Islam. Uh, We're talking centuries ago. Yeah, and uh, this is all the same thing. It's, it's, the ideology has never changed, and the, uh, the, the idea that this is some newly minted phenomenon that is a reaction to the state of Israel or a reaction to the American imperialism, so-called, or something of the kind, those, those claims themselves reflect a lack of knowledge of history. Uh, we see jihad warfare, we see terrorist, act, terrorist acts all the way through the history of Islam, in Spain, in India, as I show in the book, it was especially bloody and virulent, and this is because the Indians did not enjoy the people of the book status that the Jews and Christians did. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we would be encountering the same phenomenon today, since it's never been reconsidered. So when we try to isolate this, people will say, well, we look at the Old Testament, we see periods of violence within Judaism. We look at the Crusades and say, well, there's an example of periods of violence within Christianity. So this is kind of Islam's turn. But in fact, as you're suggesting, history bears out the idea that the roots not only go back to the founding of Islam while Muhammad was still alive, and while there have been perhaps ebbs and flows, this this violence is 
been present at one level or another the entire time, just to greater or lesser degrees in certain periods. And and while I bring up the Crusades, maybe you can set the record straight on that. People will say, well, we know that the, the Muslims, yes, in some cases can be violent today, but those Christians, look what they did. Yes, absolutely, Craig. The thing about it is that, yeah, there's violent stuff in the uh, Old Testament and New Testament, but Jews and Christians have never taken those passages to be marching orders for believers in all time. And uh, that is how the violent passages of the Quran have been interpreted in mainstream Islam. And so, yes, when you come to the Crusades, people, uh, even Bill Clinton and others who should know better, have said that this is the cause of the antagonism between the West and the Islamic world, when actually there were 450 years of jihad attacks that rolled up over half of the Christian world before there was ever a crusade. And the Crusades were a late and small-scale defensive action. This is not to excuse everything that they did, but the enterprise in itself, there was nothing wrong with it. They were simply trying to defend the Christians of the Holy Land who had been attacked by uh, Islamic jihadis and protect the Byzantine Empire, the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, which was Christian, from being further uh, diminished in size and power by the ongoing Islamic jihad. So when we look at Spain, when we look at Islam's foray into Europe, and then we juxtapose that against the Crusades, you're saying essentially what, that the Crusades were, were the victims of jihad striking back? Uh, yeah, the jihad, actually the jihadis ultimately overwhelmed the crusaders and destroyed the crusader states. The uh, crusade was first, the first crusade was called in 1095 by Pope Urban II, and the crusaders quickly established some uh, kingdoms in that area of the Holy Land, but by 1291 they were entirely uh, destroyed by the Islamic jihadis. So you have a period of about 200 years for the Crusades, and then they're over. And what's uh, interesting about that is that people say, like you were saying, well, you talk about jihad, what about the Crusades? Well, the jihad's been going on without any break for 1,400 years, while the Crusades were simply a 200-year episode in Christianity. We pause for a brief time out. We're going to come back to more of this fascinating conversation. Best-selling author and Islam expert Robert Spencer, director of Jihad Watch, a program of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. Amongst his books, his latest, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, newly released by Bombardier Press. You'll find it available through Amazon.com and certainly at jihadwatch.org. A brief time out. We'll come back to more of our visit with Robert Spencer as Lifeline continues. Get a look at traffic for you now, 15 away from the hour. And how far are you away from home, wherever you're headed? Let's see if we can shed some light on that question. The latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation. Best-selling author Robert Spencer, the book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. It is deep, it is comprehensive, and it simply walks you through what history says about violence, Islam, and jihad. We have heard, as we mentioned in our conversation today, multiple times of um, attempting to sort of uh, minimize the threat of Islam, suggestions that spates of violence are simply people hijacking an otherwise peaceful religion. We've certainly come to understand in our conversation today that that is a falsehood. We've also been told in recent months that we've got 
ISIS or Daesh on the run, that they're practically eliminated, as if somehow to suggest that we're nearing the finish line to finally having this job done. Now, as we have this conversation, Robert, we've recently passed the anniversary of the end of World War II. That was a war that had a very distinctive start date and a very distinctive ending date. What you're suggesting here is, while Islam and violence associated with same and jihad might have a very distinctive starting date, the end date is one that we have not come to yet. We don't see anywhere in the future. And I wonder, even in terms of the reality of, quote-unquote, defeating Daesh or ISIS, just how realistic that is in light of the demand of the desire to create a new caliphate. Craig, I'm sorry to say there really isn't any end date. And there will always be the aspiration to create a new caliphate, as long as there are people who believe that the Quran is the word of Allah and that Muhammad is the apostle of Allah, there will be people who believe that it is their responsibility to wage jihad against non-Muslims and subjugate them under the rule of Islamic law. The problem can't be ended, but it can be managed. And there were times when the jihad was very much in retreat, and that was when the non-Muslims were not just militarily strong, but also culturally and societally strong. And that's really what we need to recover today. So do we open up a vacuum? Uh, I'm going to guess that I'm heading down the right road and following your thought here. Do we create a vacuum that helps Islam to thrive in an environment where morality is hodgepodge, the historical Judeo-Christian ethic or value seems to be kind of up for grabs, that there is no clear-cut belief system for people in a particular community or, or nation. Does that then create an opportunity for Islam to thrive? Absolutely. Look at John Walker Lind. John Walker Lind was the, uh, the Marin County Mujahid, the Johnny Taliban. He was a young man from California who had converted to Islam, and he was captured in Afghanistan when the American troops went in after 9-11, and they found him fighting alongside the Taliban and al-Qaeda against the U.S. troops. Now, he should have been charged with treason, but he wasn't. But in regard to your question, I think he's an excellent illustration of what you're talking about, because he was the typical rootless, aimless, purposeless young man of the early 21st century or the late 20th century, that uh, he, he, his parents were very uh, permissive California uh, leftists who essentially they uh, taught him that anything goes and he could do whatever he wanted, and he did. And he was crying out for people to tell him, no, you can't do this and that. He wanted some structure and some boundaries in his life. He didn't find it anywhere except in Islam. So it's almost a a religion in a sense that helps appeal to those that feel disenfranchised. It gives a sense of purpose. I mean, certainly if we see Christianity kind of uh, flailing about, and and this is not an accusation certainly on on historical, um, biblically correct Christianity, but rather on offshoots of Christianity that that, uh, would would sort of uh, pose as being authentic Christianity when in fact they are not. It's just, you know, feel good. And as much as you get out of a a Sunday preacher's sermon, you do getting out of attending a, a, a motivational seminar by Anthony 
Anthony Robbins. And so people then say, you know, there's no there there, the kind of depth, the kind of reality, the kind of connection that I'm looking for, I'm not finding. So I'm going to go someplace where it exists. And let's face it, we've seen uh, a new generation here of young people coming up, the millennials, who they want a sense of purpose. They want to leave their mark on the world. They want to change things. They want to leave the place for the better than they found it. And I would suspect that as they look at back at their parents' generation, the baby boomer generation, and say, well, you guys have made nothing but a mess of this, so let's see if we can't change it all, and if we have to do it through a religion like Islam, so be it. Is that accurate? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, the uh, Islamic uh, proselytizers and preachers in the United States, they make very canny use of this, and uh, they present themselves as a sharp alternative to the materialism and the pointlessness of materialistic American society, and it's a, it's a message that does resonate with a lot of people who want some structure in their lives, while everybody who's in authority in their life, or should be, is telling them, do whatever you want. And this contrast exists not just between the teachings of Islam and what they perceive to be many of the failures of the West, whether it be wanton sexuality or uh, greed or things of this sort. And then along with that, I think we need to be careful to also point out that there is a major axe to grind between Islam and what Islam calls the people of the book, or specifically Jews and Christians. Talk to us briefly, if you would, about that that very uncomfortable uh, coexistence that we see even in the Middle East, where historically there have been times that Jews and Christians and Muslims all kind of resided together. They lived their own lives. Nobody got in anybody's way. We're certainly seeing far less and less of that. Well, they did live together, only when the Jews and Christians knew their place as dhimmis, as prescribed in the Quran and in Islamic law, that the people of the book have a second-class status and are denied basic rights. Now, the reason why some of the ancient Christian communities were suddenly attacked by ISIS in the last few years is because ISIS came and claimed to be the new caliphate. And if the Christians did not accept that claim, then they were classified as Kufar Harbi, infidels at war with Islam, and their contract of protection, that is the dimitude, the second-class status, was revoked, and then they could lawfully be killed. And so uh, hundreds of thousands of people, probably well over a million, were uh, of these ancient Christian communities were murdered on, on, uh, on that basis. Wow. Moving forward, from your perspective, what can we anticipate in the future, and how should the West be responding, both from a, a, a traditional, historical, Judeo-Christian perspective as well as from a political perspective? Well, there's going to be more jihad, and we need to, uh, in a political perspective, we need to reconfigure our international alliances. I think President Trump is moving toward doing this. He's recognized that Turkey and Pakistan are not actual genuine allies of the United States and is recognizing that on a legal basis instead of just continuing to throw money at them uselessly. Well, and what about Saudi Arabia that has been the number one exporter of Wahhabism? And we always seem to forget that 11, no more than that, 15 of the 19 terrorists on 9-11 were in fact Saudi Arabians. Yet we go about the street as if Saudi Arabia is one of our best friends. Yeah, that has to be changed. But he's playing a very difficult game in regard to Saudi Arabia because... Saudi Arabia is a bulwark against Iran, and he wants to limit the power of Iran after Obama so strengthened Iran. So I understand why in the short term he is not moving against Saudi Arabia, but in the long term this is going to have to be, a, have to be faced. 
Wow, it sounds like uh, we in the West have got an awful lot to do and an awful lot to learn, to be sure. One good place to start that learning process is uh, getting a copy of this new book written by our guest today, Robert Spencer. Again, the title is The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, and the best-selling author 12 times over. This now uh, a new book in his uh, writing career and a very insightful one. It's a read that I think everybody needs to be aware of. You say, well, I'm, you know, I'm never going to become an expert on Islam. Well, uh, that might be, but you might become a victim of Islam if you don't learn more about it. The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, newly published by Bombardier Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com or more information directly at jihadwatch.org. That's jihadwatch.org. Our thanks to Robert Spencer, author and director of Jihad Watch, a program of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Six o'clock, we're going to head over, get you some headline news. But before we do that, we're going to get you some traffic news. Michael Bennett stands by with the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's up? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.